Well, good evening. Welcome to Tuesday Evening Chapel. Doing okay? Good, good. Our speaker for this evening is Dr. Dan Powers, Director of Bible and Theology Program and our New Testament Professor. Thank you, Dr. Powers, for ministering to us tonight. As we prepare our hearts, I'd like for us to um, begin our chapel service uh, with a word of prayer. So if I can have you all stand. Um, we have an urgent prayer request this evening for one of our fellow students and um, friend, even our, our, our campus photographer, Rick Hayman. Hatton, Rick Hatton. Rick Hatton, he's in intensive care this evening, uh, fighting for his life. And um, it's been under request that we pray for him and his family. So I asked Dr. Powers if he would like, come and lead us in a time of prayer. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we do, re we do lift up Rick to you this evening and, and ask for your healing of his body. We pray you be with him and his wife, Bromlin, during this time, which is such a, a shocking and a, and a difficult time. Lord, even right now as he's in intensive care, actually in a, in a coma, then we would just ask that you would touch his body, that you would strengthen him, that you would, um, would, you would do the things that, that doctors don't even know need to be done because you know him intimately, inside and out. And so, Father, would you touch his body? Would you allow those parts of his body that are not functioning to start to function? Would you give the doctors wisdom and, and guidance to steps they can do? But, Lord, we know that you're the great physician. And we call upon your strength and your wisdom and your touch to make a difference in his life. Lord, would you be with Bromlin? Would you help her during this time as, as she battles with the, with the confusion, the, the, the questions, the, the, the pain of, of her husband's um, struggle with life right now? Lord, buoy her up and, and let her sense your presence and your comfort even now as we pray. Lord, we do thank you that, that Rick is in your hands and we can trust him. We can trust him um, in your hands, and we know, Lord, that you'll do what, what needs to be done. Your presence is there. We do not have to convince you to be there because you've been there all along. And so, Lord, we just lift him up to you and ask for your miracles to take place and that you give us the faith, you give us the confidence, regardless of how this turns out, to give you glory and praise because you are God and we can trust you. These things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Praying, amen. We thank our God for He is with us, and we thank Him for His love. We thank Him for His grace and His mercy. And all that is within us, we worship you, God. This evening I want to talk to you about a passage from Peter's second letter. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn to 2 Peter. And in just a little while, we're going to read our text from chapter 2. Now, if you've ever read through 2 Peter, you already know that this letter can seem really quite negative and critical. In much of this letter, then Peter attacks and criticizes a group of false teachers who have infiltrated the church. And since this is Peter we are talking about here, 
Peter leaves no stone unturned in his negative and critical attack on these false teachers. Well, I don't know about you, but I really don't like negative things all that much. And pessimistic people just don't tend to be my favorite kind of people. Just being honest about that. Negative people seem to be able to find something wrong with everything. And that's probably one of the reasons why I'm not always so happy about that. Kind of reminds me of a story I once heard about a man who had a dog. You've probably heard this story, but I'm going to tell you anyway. Um, this man and his dog were walking along the beach one day when they met another guy from their town who is known as the most pessimistic and negative person in town. Well, the owner of this dog was really quite proud of his dog's newly mastered trick. And so he said to this pessimist, hey, watch this. And he picked up a piece of driftwood and he threw it as far as he could out into the water. Well, the dog immediately jumped up and it ran on top of the water out onto the lake and fetched the piece of wood. Well, the pessimist just looked at this and kind of shook his head in disbelief. And so the man picked up the stick once again and threw it out again into the water as far as he could. And once again, the dog jumps up and it runs out on top of the water and fetches the stick. But the pessimist just shakes his head without saying a word. Well, finally, the man with the dog said, well, did you notice anything unusual about my dog? And the pessimist responded, your dog can't swim, can he? Well, I just don't like negative people all that much. There you go. And so why should we read a passage from such a negative letter like 2 Peter? Why should we spend our time contemplating what Peter writes here when we already know beforehand that the letter is going to be mainly negative and critical? Well, I want us to look at this passage in 2 Peter 2 because I'm convinced there are a couple of very important lessons we can learn from it. As a matter of fact, the passage I want to read to you contains two valuable lessons and a surprise. Two valuable lessons and a surprise. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 2, and I'd like to read verses 4 to 10 with you. If you'd stand with me, I'd like us to read from the Lord's Word together. So 2 Peter chapter 2, and I'm going to begin by reading verse, verse 4. Now, in the verses just before our passage, then Peter says that these false teachers are bringing swift destruction on themselves and that their condemnation has been hanging over them for a long time. And that's where we pick up in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the, fl the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes, and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if you rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authority. May the Lord add his blessing to this reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, it seems pretty negative, doesn't it? Peter talks about God bringing destruction and condemnation. He writes about God punishing angels and sending them to hell and to gloomy dungeons to await judgment. 
He talks about God's destruction of the entire earth through the flood in the days of Noah. And Peter writes about God's condemnation and firestorm that he brought down upon the sinful cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's not exactly the kind of story you want to read to your kids at bedtime to help them sleep better at night, is it? But there are two valuable lessons and a surprise that I want to make sure we don't miss this evening. And so let's look a, bit close, a little bit more closely at this passage this evening. The first lesson that Peter teaches us and reminds us about in this text is that the Lord knows how to judge the unrighteous. The Lord knows how to judge and punish the unrighteous. Now I know this is a pretty negative lesson, but it's a lesson that we need to learn well. God knows how to judge and to punish sinfulness. This is an important lesson that Peter's readers were being tempted to forget by these false teachers. And I'm afraid that this is a truth that we are also tempted to forget today. In Peter's time, these false teachers were a sly and despicable group. Peter tells us that these false teachers were undermining the gospel message. With loud and boastful words, they scorned the teaching of the apostles. Peter describes them in chapter 2, verse 14, as experts in greed. They had trained themselves to always look out for themselves, trying to grab and to take and to hold on to more and more things just for themselves. But we need to understand that this word greed that Peter uses here in verse 14 to describe these people is more than just the love of money. The word that Peter uses here describes the desire for more and more of anything. Money, possessions, power, food, influence, even sexual pleasure. Within the context of this passage, this word for greed certainly would include the idea of greed for money, but it conveys an even broader idea of a lust for more. A lust for more. These people lusted for more money. They lusted for more sexual pleasure. They lusted for more popularity. They lusted for more power over the people around them. And to make matters even worse, these people had infiltrated the church posing as spiritual leaders, as teachers. They preached a message of freedom and self-indulgence by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh. They preached a message something like this. God wants us to be free. God made us the way we are. God just wants us to be happy. Matter of fact, God has created those desires within our hearts, and so we should just follow and obey the desires of our heart, whatever those desires might be. In chapter 2, verse 14, Peter says that they seduce the unstable, and their eyes are full of adultery. One commentator explains that this phrase, eyes full of adultery, means that their eyes are always looking for a woman with whom to commit adultery. Peter writes, they never stop sinning. And in the midst of all this lust and greed and deception, they laughed at the idea that Christ would ever return or that Christ would ever hold them accountable. Look at what, a, what Peter writes in chapter 1, verse 16. He writes, We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, 
these false teachers laughed away the teaching of the apostles by saying that these were simply cleverly invented stories. These are just invented stories. There's no truth to that at all. Look at what Peter says again in chapter 3, verses 3 to 4. Peter tells his readers, You must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this coming that he, that he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. In the midst of the laughing and scorn and scoffing of the false teachers, the believers were tempted to think that maybe God really was not going to punish sin and unrighteousness after all. We're often tempted to think the same thing, aren't we? Just like in Peter's day, our own society scoffs at the idea of accountability or punishment of sin. In the world all around us, sin is flaunted and even celebrated. All around us, it seems like sin is advertised and even promoted. We see greed and hatred. We see selfishness and cruelty. We see sexual promiscuity and perversion. We see wickedness and we see absolute self-centeredness. And the entire idea of accountability or punishment is laughed right out the door. Hey, don't blame me. I was born this way. God loves us. He wouldn't send anyone to hell. That's not a God of love. Hey, God doesn't even exist. Hell doesn't exist. Here and now is all there is. Or how about this one? If God were ever going to punish us, he would have done it a long time ago. But nothing has ever happened, and nothing has ever changed. Peter wants to remind us of the same profound lesson that he delivered to the believers in the first century. It might not be a very popular lesson, but it is crucial for us to learn it well. Peter reminds us that the Lord knows how to judge and punish the unrighteousness, the unrighteous. And so in quick succession, Peter reminds his readers of God's judgment and punishment in the past. Jewish tradition tells of God's punishment of angels who rebelled and turned against him. The Old Testament scriptures record the punishment and judgment of God upon the wicked people of Noah's day when God destroyed the whole world in the flood. And the story of the fiery destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah is a testament to God's power and determination to punish sinfulness. Believe me, the Lord knows how to punish unrighteousness. We cannot afford to listen to the scoffing and scorn of those who are on the road to destruction. As a matter of fact, Peter tells us and tells his readers that this kind of scoffing is a sign that the last day is quickly approaching. And said, so, you know what? It doesn't matter how many funny movies Hollywood produces that celebrates unfaithfulness, dishonesty, and sexual perversion. The Lord knows how to punish the unrighteous. It doesn't matter how many people you work with blatantly cheat and gossip viciously and steal money and time from the boss as if there's no reckoning day at all. The Lord knows how to punish the unrighteous. It doesn't matter if our society laughs at the idea of sexual purity. It doesn't matter if honesty is viewed as a weakness. 
It doesn't matter if greed and the pursuit of money alone is the name of the game today. It doesn't matter if personal happiness is lifted up as the highest goal, regardless of who else it might hurt or betray. Peter reminds us that wrong is wrong, and the Lord knows how to judge and punish the unrighteous. I know it's hard when the Christian belief system is made into a mockery of prudishness and stupidity by the society around us. I know that there are voices all around us, both inside and outside the church, unfortunately, who deny and reject the idea that God is really going to hold us accountable for sin and ungodliness. But we cannot be distracted from the reality and truth that God is going to have the last word. And the Lord knows how to judge and to punish. You know, the truth is sometimes a bit hard and painful for us to face up to. And sometimes we just don't like the answer the truth gives to us. But we have to face up to it anyway. Kind of reminds me of a story that my father sent to me a while ago. In a trial, a southern small-town prosecuting attorney called his first witness. And she was a grandmotherly, elderly woman who came up to the stand. He approached her and asked, Mrs. Jones, do you know me? And she responded, why, yes, I do know you, Mr. Williams. I've known you since you were a young boy, and frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat on your wife, and you manipulate people and talk about them behind their backs. You think you're a big shot when you haven't the brains to realize you will never amount to anything more than a two-bit paper pusher. Yes, I know you. Well, the lawyer was stunned. And so he didn't know what else to do, and so he pointed across the room, and he asked, well, Mrs. Jones, do you know the defense attorney? And again, she replied, yes, I do. I've known Mr. Bradley since he was a youngster, too. He's lazy, bigoted, and he has a drinking problem. He can't build a normal relationship with anyone, and his law practice is one of the worst in the entire state. Not to mention, he cheated on his wife with three different women, one of them was your wife. <laughs> yes, I do know him. Well, the defense attorney almost died on the spot. And so at that point, the judge quickly asked the counselors to both approach the bench. And in a very quiet voice, he said, Now listen carefully to me, you two. If either one of you idiots asks this woman if she knows me, I'll send you to the electric chair. The truth is not always easy to hear, is it? It's not always easy to hear. But we need to realize that sooner or later, the truth will be known. And so this is the first point of truth from Peter that we need to listen to carefully. I know it's not a very popular point. I know that it's really quite negative. But it's crucial for us to know and to understand. The Lord knows how to judge and to punish the unrighteous. You know, as important as this first lesson is, I'm so glad that Peter did not stop there. But Peter gave his readers a second truth that we also need to hear. Namely, the second lesson that Peter teaches us is that the Lord knows how to save the righteous. The good news is that the Lord doesn't only know how to judge and punish the unrighteous, but he also knows how to rescue the righteous. And so think about this. When we are righteous, when we stay away from sin in our lives, when we always do the right thing and not the wrong thing, the Lord knows how to save us. 
Well, that's great news, isn't it? As long as we always do what is right, the Lord knows how to rescue us. As long as we remain godly, as long as we avoid falling into temptation, as long as we always do the right thing and never the wrong thing, huh? Well, as long as we remain pure and undefiled by the world around us, huh? The Lord knows how to save the righteous. Hmm. Well, this is the second point that Peter brings to us. But I don't know about, about you, but when I really start thinking about this, I'm starting to feel a little bit uncomfortable about this text. You feel that as well? As long as we're righteous, as long as we don't do anything wrong, as long as we always do the right, never the wrong, the Lord can save the righteous. Well, I suppose that's good. But do the righteous really need to be saved? Well, maybe they do. But what's that got to do with me? What's that got to do with you? You know, right now, while I'm standing here preaching in chapel, I must admit that I'm feeling pretty righteous. I feel pretty good about myself right now. And all of you sitting here in chapel, you're probably feeling pretty good about yourselves as well. But when I'm honest with myself, I have a lot of times when I don't feel so righteous. And there are even times when I'm not really sure that I even act righteously. So Peter tells us that the Lord knows how to save and rescue the righteous. That's the second point of our sermon, but right about now it's not sounding too much like very good news to me. It's hard to always be righteous, isn't it? It's hard. It's really difficult to keep our minds and thoughts away from the garbage going on all around us. It's hard to do that. It's like you can't go anywhere without being bombarded by the sinful lifestyle of people all around us. And despite the fact that we know that it's wrong, sometimes it even tempts us anyway. And even if we're not tempted, it often feels like we're trying to stay clean while swimming through the middle of a sewer. The Lord knows how to save the righteous. Well, it's a hard one. But then Peter throws us a surprise. Peter throws us a surprise. I just love this about Peter. You remember I told you this scripture passage contains two lessons and a surprise. And the lessons are pretty straightforward, as we've already seen. Namely, the Lord knows how to judge and punish the unrighteous. We've got that clear. And the Lord knows how to rescue the righteous. Well, as important as the, and true as these lessons are, it's the surprise that I like the most. I love the example that Peter uses for a righteous man. When Peter says that the Lord knows how to rescue the righteous, he does not hold up the example of Abraham to his readers. He doesn't point them to King David or to Moses or to one of the great prophets. The example he uses to demonstrate that the Lord knows how to rescue the righteous is the example of Lot, Abraham's nephew. This is really surprising. You see, the Old Testament never holds Lot up as an example of righteousness. You need to read Genesis 19 sometime. The description we get of Lot in Genesis chapter 19 is not very complimentary at all. One commentator writes, Lot appears simply as a man of the world, 
who had strayed a long way from the God of his fathers. Though hospitable, that's his positive point, well, at least I'm hospitable. Though hospitable, he is described as weak, morally depraved, and even drunken. You remember that Lot is the one who lived right smack dab in the middle of the evil city of Sodom. According to Genesis 19, verse 16, Lot was so reluctant to leave sinful Sodom that he had to be dragged out of the city before it was destroyed by God. It's interesting to look at the word that Peter uses when he says the Lord knows how to rescue the righteous. Peter probably even has Lot in mind here because the word rescue that he uses, the Greek word ruomai, means literally to rescue from danger by dragging. By dragging. God had to drag Lot away from Sodom in order to rescue him. You know, the surprising example of Lot as a righteous man is really encouraging to me. The Old Testament does not portray Lot as a sterling example of a righteous man. In fact, the writer of Genesis almost seems to go out of his way to document the shortcomings of Lot. But here's the good news. God rescued Lot anyway. Now, this does not mean that it doesn't matter what we do. And it doesn't mean that God will, re will rescue us regardless of how we live our lives. We cannot overlook the fact that Peter notes that Lot was distressed, that Lot was tormented by the sinfulness around him. However, even though Lot was surrounded by moral decay and depravity, Lot never lost sight of the Lord. Despite the perverse attraction that his sinful culture exerted upon him, Lot rejected Sodom, and God rescued him, dragging him to safety. You know, Peter could have used Abraham as an example of God's deliverance of a righteous man. You know, Abraham was also spared from the destruction of the evil cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Instead, Peter uses the example of the weak and often tempted Lot. I'm convinced that Peter used Lot as, as his example because his readers, just like us, can identify with Lot. Abraham is a great example of righteousness, and I'm glad that we have these types of examples like Abraham in the Bible. But it's really hard to measure up to the standard of faith and righteousness that is exemplified in Abraham. It's much easier for us to identify with Lot. Lot was distressed. He was tormented. He was even tempted by the sin surrounding him. But he resisted it anyway. And God rescued him. You see, Lot's story is a story, once again, of God's indescribable grace. God's grace. You see, if God could rescue Lot, he can be trusted to rescue you and me as well. And so Peter gives us two valuable lessons and a surprise. And the surprise is, once again, the story of God's surprising, incredible, amazing grace, as it is exemplified once again in the salvation of Lot. You know, when we strive to be obedient to God, the Lord really does know how to save and rescue the righteous. Amen. And in the stand in response.
it's important for us to recognize that it is truly by grace that we are saved through faith. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel very confident about that grace and that faith, and sometimes I don't. But it's important for us to realize that God knows how to rescue us. And he calls us to a life of obedience. And he calls us to a life of holiness. But he understands the struggle we face. And he's a God who loves us and cares and praise God who rescues us. And so what do we need to do? We need to be obedient to him. We need to follow him. We need to resist those temptations of the world around us and fall upon his grace, his amazing grace. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for your grace. Father, we thank you that our salvation ultimately isn't dependent upon our own strength to avoid evil, but it's dependent upon our trusting in you and your grace to, to help us in that race, to help us in that walk. Lord, I thank you for giving us the strength. I thank you for your Holy Spirit who wants to buoy us up and to give us the strength to avoid that evil, but who also reminds us of the grace which is there to forgive us when we stumble and fall. Father, it's kind of scary sometimes to realize that you really do know how to punish and judge the unrighteous. But Lord, we do give you thanks and praise that you also know how to rescue the righteous and to bring us to that place where we can serve you obediently and victoriously in this life. And so as we go from this place, Lord, I don't know if we're feeling like we're living that life and that it's just going great or we feel like we're just being dragged right through the middle of the mud. But I thank you, Lord, that you understand the struggle we're going through and your grace is there to help us that your spirit is there to encourage us. That Christ himself understands the temptation we find ourselves in. And that through him we can be victorious over these things. Thank you, Lord, that you not only know how to judge and punish unrighteousness, but you know how to rescue us as we follow you and obey you. And so, Father, we take that promise with you. It's not a promise we just think about when things are going well, although it's a good promise. But it's a promise, Lord, that we can hold on to when we feel like we're failing. When we feel like the things that are going around us in the world is just too strong for us. And we can call upon you and your grace to rescue us, to help us, to strengthen us, to give us the power to overcome, to be even more than overcomers through Christ Jesus. And we give you thanks and praise that we serve a God who truly knows how to rescue us. These things we pray in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. The Lord bless you.